0: Kind of old fashioned cop who preferred working in the streets and making arrests to taking tests a promotion. He was the closest thing New York had to a dirty Harry. This
1: is One Tough Podcast on the OG Podcast Network.
0: Here's your host, Bo Deedle. Welcome to One Tough Podcast. I'm joined here always with my man Carlo. Hello. Today we have a good friend of mine, and I don't say it lightly, I really have a lot of respect for him, Mr. Terry Winter. Terry Winter is a a screenwriter, a producer, a director, he does the dishes for his wife, he's the best known for Sopranos, The Boardwalk Empire, Vinyl, Wolf of Wall Street, wow. All I gotta say is, Terry, thanks for being here today.
1: I am happy to be here, my friend. How you doing?
0: Good, good. I want to just do a little background, how the foundation occurred, who uh, making you who you are. You grew up, where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up in Brooklyn, in Marine Park. Uh, it's a neighborhood uh, kind of near Sheepshead Bay. I always have to describe Marine Park uh, based on what it's close to, because nobody ever knows the neighborhood. It's, it's sort of near Sheepshead Bay. I, ended, I went to school near Coney Island, with the high school school. Uh, William E. Grady High School, uh, where I studied to be an auto mechanic. Mm-hmm. That didn't work
0: out. <laughs> well, that's good you didn't become the mechanic. Otherwise, <laughs> you'd be putting some fenders on my car. Uh, I,
1: I'm sure. And,
0: and then you actually went to law school. Where'd you go to law school? at?
1: I did. I went to St. John's Law School uh, in uh, God, a million years ago. I graduated in 1988. I uh, yeah, I took a. It was a very circuitous route. You know, I, like I said, I went to high school to be an auto mechanic. I knew that wasn't going to work out. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. The only ambition I had as a kid was uh, I wanted to be rich, and I had no <laughs> idea how to make that happen. Uh, so I, I, I did what most uh, what most young uh, entrepreneurs do. I went to the delicatessen business. Uh, so that was the first thing I did when I was 19, and uh, that didn't work out. And that that's what led me to college. So uh, I ended up uh, going to NYU. Uh, you know, and despite the fact that NYU is one of the predominant and preeminent places where they teach film and TV, I, that wasn't even on my radar at that point. Uh, again, you know, my big ambition was I want to be successful. And the only two things I knew that could get you there, you know, were doctor and lawyer. So I went to law school. And uh, I hated every minute of it. And you, I'm sure they hated me, too.
0: Yeah, you could have jumped over to the Tisch School over there in NYU, and you could have cut yeah. through half the crap. Now, did you practice being a lawyer at all?
1: <laughs> I did. I worked for about two years for a big firm in Manhattan. And, you know, from day one, I I hated it. I mean, I just, it, was a, it was a huge mistake for me. You know, I, I you know, mainly because I wasn't, you know, I did it for the wrong reasons. I didn't do it because I was interested in it or was passionate about it or I wanted to help people. Again, it was very mercenary. I did it because I thought, oh, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll have an important job. You know, my philosophy, too, was, all right, well, everybody hates their job, so I'll hate my job, but at least I'll make a lot of money. (laughs) You know, my deep, dark, my dark secret was I wanted to be a writer, but, you know, you know, you grew up in a neighborhood. You know, you know, guys like us, you know, you don't tell your friends, oh, "I want to be an actor or a writer in Hollywood." You get thrown in the river, you know. Yeah. So I kept that quiet. Yeah, it you know, wasn't. It wasn't, was it
0: wasn't too cool to go up to the corner and say, "Guess what I'm <laughs> going to do? I'm going to write in Hollywood." <laughs> they throw you off the corner. You know, it's just funny. A yeah, lot, a lot of, of friends of mine, very successful guys. All started out with friggin' law degrees. When it comes to mind, my, yeah. my, my ex-partner there, Steve Witkoff, he, he was a lawyer where he was a lawyer actually for Donald Trump, President Trump, prior to him becoming president. And then he went into the, the he saw Donald with the development and he said, whoa, this yeah. stuff looks pretty good. I could become rich too. Wow. Now he's a billionaire and uh, he's not yep. a lawyer anymore, but it's a great foundation. Yeah. You know, it's a great foundation. It is. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't. I don't regret
1: it, you know. I mean, honestly, you know, I, as much as I, I disliked the process and, I, you know, again, I wasn't really interested, I don't regret those years. You know, what it what it taught me was, uh, you know, how to think critically. Uh, how, you know, certainly, I mean, I think I had a pretty good work ethic anyway. But, I mean, the idea of going, you know, I went to night school. I'd work all day. I worked for Merrill Lynch during the day. I went to school at night, studied for the bar exam, passed the bar. I mean, I, you know, that kind of training translates into anything else. And it's funny, you know, I think a lot of people get into law, not really knowing what it means. You know, they grow up watching, you know, Perry Mason or LA law, and they think they're going to be in court and doing murder trials. And the reality is it's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of dealing with insurance companies and stuff. And I think people kind of get shocked. They do it and then they go, oh my God, this isn't what I signed up for, you know, but it's, it's, a, it's, You know, it's also you graduate from college and you have no idea what you want to do. Going to law school sounds like a really legitimate way to spend a couple of years. And people stop asking questions. They go, oh, that's great. You're in law school. Meanwhile, the people there really don't know why they're there. And they don't know whether or not they, you know, want to continue doing it. It's not until they get out. And I have a lot of friends who practice law who ended up going on to do different things. You know, I, I,
0: I caught something you said. And in doing the podcast, I don't know, we have 80-something of these in the can and a lot of successful people we've had on the show. You said something that just resonated in my little mind. You mentioned about going to, to, to law school at night, working a job, Merrill Lynch. One thing I notice is the direction of how hard you work. I always tell that to my kids, you know, hard work equals success. Complacence. Yep complacency is the death of success. And you said it when you were talking in what you said, you were going night school, yeah. you were doing this, working this job, delis this, but whatever you had to do, you worked hard. And that was part of, I believe the success that you have now, because it was it's, the foundation. It's, it's probably, it's,
1: it's, it's most of the success I have. One of my favorite sayings is there, there's no elevator to success. You have to take the stairs. Uh, and that is absolutely true. you got to work hard. Um, you know, it's one thing, you know, to be born a silver spoon kid and, you know, have things handed to you. That's not really success. You know, honestly, that it's, you know, we've seen too many ways how how that's bad for people. The idea, you know, for me, it's like, okay, if you want to get from A to B, you know, I grew up, I was the last of five kids. My dad died when I was seven. My mom was a secretary, you know, keep kept that family together. And I said, all right, you know, I want to be successful. It's like, all right, you're starting from scratch. How do I do it? And, you know, the interesting thing is, okay, we we live in a country, thank God, where you go, oh, wait a minute. All I have to do is work my ass off and I can have anything I want? Great. Where do I sign up? You know, it's funny. A lot of people, you know – A lot of people who grew up here, you know, we're very spoiled. You know, we we get very complacent. And you look at immigrants, and it's really interesting. And they go, how did this guy come here and in one generation owns a business, owns his own home? Because they come here, and and people come and realize, God, this is truly the land of opportunity. So you get some guy who comes from some country where he had no opportunity, and you say to him, yeah, all you got to do is work 18 hours a day. And guess what? You can have your own home. Mm -hmm. And they go, that's all I have to do? That's it, and they great, sure well yeah I'll, I'll, I'll own a store I'll stay open 24 hours when I was a kid in my neighborhood, there was a uh, a Chinese laundry, and there were uh, Chinese immigrants and the, guy, the the family lived in the back of the store, and the dad used to sleep at night on the counter so you could walk by and the guy was asleep that was his bed was the counter of the law of the dry cleaner wow. and they, he worked there and they that, that went on for years until they bought a house. The two boys went up, went on to become professionals. I think one's a lawyer. I think one went to work on Wall Street. This was in one generation, and because they came and they worked, they worked hard. Yeah, you, know, really you, did. Want, you and, know,
0: and that's one of the issues here in New York City. We have this uh, this mayor, Big Bird, that I named him, and he's very uh, <laughs> uh, against the Asian community. You know what? These are the same kids. When our kids are running out on the Facebook and uh, Instagram, yep. these kids are working hard, working for their moms and dads, making deliveries, whatever they're doing, studying back at a restaurant putting this effort in there, and all of a sudden he wants to take it away, because too many of them are getting too high of marks. That's bullcrap. And you want to know something? Yeah. I'm really upset about that, because even with the Italians, and obviously with the Jewish part of me, because I uh, my first wife is a Russian Jew, so I'm a Jew, because my grandson's Jewish, my daughter and my son are Jewish. Uh. So that makes me a Jew yeah. book through injection. But I'm going to go even to the Italians. When I worked as a laborer, concrete laborer, before I became an iron worker, these Italian immigrants, and I'm a first generation. Uh, my, my, mom, my mom was born in Catania, Sicily. And then all of a sudden, when they would come over here and work in the construction as laborers, they would eat broccoli rob sandwiches. And, uh, yeah. you know, they would save every dime, every penny. They would go out, work hard, build, build, buy a house, and then fix it up, and then sell it and buy a better one, and then open a business, a restaurant. It's all about one thing, hard work. Stop sitting there being jealous about what someone else is doing. Go out there. It's all for you. That's what I love about this country. Absolutely. And I don't, yeah. want, I don't want people to take, uh, you know, capitalism away from us because that's part of our, 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 our beginnings is you work hard right. and you should reap that harvest of having good things when you work hard.
1: That's it. Simple. Absolutely. Yeah. The other so, thing, carry- too, it's funny. You know, I get people say, oh, you know, I, I can't afford to go to college. And guess what? Every Literally every dime I spent for college and law school was student loans. I had my entire education was financed by student loans, which I was lucky enough to be able to get just because, you know, they, they offered it. And, the, and it's funny, I mean, back, this is back in the 80s, the interest rate was 20%. I ended up knocking it down to 10%, which was considered fantastic. I wasn't until It wasn't until my mid-40s that I, I, I paid these things back. It was like having a mortgage. But you know what? I, and I say it to say, thank God I grew up in a place that even allowed me to borrow the money to go to college. Right. So, you right. know, it, rather than complain, oh, it's not fair. That, yeah, guess what? It's not fair. It's really, really hard. So go out, shut up, go do it, That's work it. hard, pay it off. And stop complaining. You know what? I mean, again, you know, we're lucky enough to be in a place where you have the opportunity to do this. You know, and again, and, you know, in one generation I went from, you know, a a mom, you know, who barely, you know, made enough money to keep our family together to, you know, going to law school and having a really successful career, all because everybody in my world worked hard and taught me the value of of doing the same thing. So now we
0: we talked about – how life is success, but I think that we want to get down to the dirty nitty gritty of Terry Winter. <laughs> so you know you're, you're there, uh-huh. you're working as a lawyer, and all of a sudden you decide to move to LA and try your hand at, at Hollywood. So how did that happen? How did it all start?
1: I well, it all started. uh You know, this is it, it, it really true. I. I was at a party in LA after my writing career started a couple of years into it, and I a friend had of mine you, had, had a party. Had you party. written?
0: Had you written anything on your own, just like, uh, like on, on your spec? own thing? Yeah, well,
1: I, well, I'll tell you. So I'm at this party, and my friend's mom is a school teacher in New York, and she she asked me the same question: How did this all start? Who? What was the first time you knew you could you could write? And I said. Honestly, I had a high school teacher in automotive school in Grady who used to make us write short stories on Friday. And she she called me after school one day and she said uh, after class, she said, I got to tell you, you're a really talented writer. You should think about going to college. And at that point, I was like, eh, yeah, I'm, I'm going into the deli business. But that was the first adult that ever told me I was talented. And it wasn't until years later that you know, when I was when I did apply to college that I started taking, like, I started to write short stories a little bit, and that was the deep, dark secret in the back of my head was I, I love TV and I love movies. And, you know, at some level, I vaguely knew, obviously, somebody wrote these things, but I had no clue about how to get into doing that as a job. And again, like I said before… The idea of doing that as a job feels so goofy when you grow up in New York, you know, in a blue collar place where at that point there was no film and TV in New York. I didn't know anybody in the business. So it wasn't until, you know, I went through law school, I, I tried everything else to not be a writer, that I finally, two years into my law career, was so unhappy. Uh, and, you know, I was, I was in my late 20s at this point, and I finally got to the point where I just said, all right, forget about the law degree, forget about the diploma. What do you want to do when you wake up in the morning? I asked myself. And and the deep, dark secret was I want to be a a sitcom writer at the time. That's how I started. And once I was able to say that out loud, everything changed. I said, you know what? Life is too short. I'm not going to be 80 years old and look back and go, I wonder what would have happened if I tried this. I got to give this a shot. So I told my family and friends, I'm moving to L.A. I'm going to be a writer. So you can imagine My friends in Brooklyn were like, all right, wait a minute. You went to automotive high school. You somehow get into NYU. You graduate from law school. You pass the bar. You're working in a major Manhattan law firm. You're going to quit that and move to L.A. where you've never been to write scripts and you've never written a script before. (laughs) What kind of plan is this? I said, I'm telling you, I know it sounds crazy. I know this is the right thing. This is my destiny. And they're like, you're out of your fucking mind. You're <laughs> going to be back here in six months. I said, I'm not coming back. I'm telling you, I'm going. And I showed up in L.A. in, uh, in May of 91. I didn't know a soul. I showed up here like, uh, like I parachuted out of the sky. And I just said, I'm going to figure this out. I'm going to teach myself this business. I got an apartment in uh, West Hollywood, like a Sharon an apartment. I ended up taking my law degree off my resume, and I got a job as a paralegal for an oil company downtown, Unical. Uh, they had no idea I was actually a lawyer. I was, I was working there as a paralegal, wow. and I came home at night, and I lived like a monk. And for, for two and a half years, I came home, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I taught myself the business. I remember I went out, and I got um, the Hollywood Producers Directory. This was before the internet. And I just studied this book, or oh, okay, Mike Ovitz, he's in charge of CAA, and this guy's in charge of Warner Brothers and that guy's in charge of Disney. And I just started to learn who's who. I started buying – I didn't even buy Variety. I used to go to 7-Eleven every day and stand at the magazine counter and read Variety for free and then put it back on this thing and leave <laughs> because I didn't have enough money to buy it. Wow. But I was just teaching myself, you know, all right, how does this work? The other thing – I'm not, I'm not shy, as you know – I would call people, I would call a producer out of the phone book, out of the producer directory and say, hi, my name's Terry Winter. I'm a writer I'm from New York. I, can I come in and talk to you for five minutes? They go, about what? I go, I just want to talk to you about what you do. I, I want to learn about this business. And half the people would say, you know, don't call me again. And the other half would go, yeah, sure. Come on in. And I'd come in and I'd sit down for 20 minutes and just say, can you tell – what do you do exactly? You produce a TV show. How does that work? And And slowly I started to build a network of people I knew who were in the business, and it took me two and a half years of um, slogging away, and uh, I finally, you know, ended up getting a job. I'm leaving out a a big part. I ended up creating a phony agency where I represented myself. Um, That that helped a lot, too. One of the – one of the catch-22s in Hollywood is that you can't get a job if you don't have an agent, and you can't get an agent if you don't have a job. So, of course, you ask yourself, well, how does anything ever happen? How, do you, how does anybody – nobody knows the answer. There is no answer. So, I, you know, I would call agencies and CAA and William Morris and all the other ones, and I'd get an agent on the phone, and they'd say, all right, send me your scripts, and weeks would go by, and I'd call back, and, oh, we haven't gotten to it yet, and then they'd forget who you were, and it was unbelievably frustrating. And a few people who were reading my stuff said, yeah, you're really talented. You've got to get an agent. I said, I know. I'm trying. I don't, how do you do that? So finally, I went down to the Writers Guild, and they had a list of agents who will take unsolicited scripts. And basically what that means is if you were to send a script to CAA right now, unsolicited, just send, send them with a cover letter, hey, I wrote this script, it would come back in the mail unopened. And they would say, we don't accept unsolicited material. You need to be recommended. So these agents uh, on the list of the Writers Guild were, were young agents or new agents who wanted to find clients. So complete coincidence, there was a guy on this list who sat four seats away from me during law school. Uh-huh. His name was Doug, and he lived in, in Long Island, and I hadn't sp- spoken to this guy in years. I called him up. I said, what are you doing? Are you a, You're an agent now? And he said, no, I'm a real estate lawyer in Long Island, but I had a client who wrote a book on real estate, and I used my fee to get bonded as an agent, but I don't know anything about being an agent. I said, great. Congratulations. You're my agent. You're perfect. (laughs) I said, here's what we're going to do. I said, I'm going to open up an agency under your letterhead. I'm going to pay for everything. I'm going to get a voicemail system. I'm going to get a mailbox, et cetera, address. I'm going to photocopy all my scripts. I'm going to send them out to every sitcom in in L.A. And if we get anything, I'll give you 10%, like an agent. So that's what I did. I ended up taking a day off from work. I hit literally every single sitcom. I Drive on to this is back in the days when you could do this. I'd pull up to Warner Brothers and go, yeah, I am a messenger. I need to drop these scripts off. OK, go ahead. And I go in and I was I just papered this town with my scripts. And a couple of weeks went by. Well, what and I got were the first scripts?
0: What were the first scripts you wrote? What type of
1: script? I wrote, what, what, you, what you need to do is write uh, something that's known as a spec script. You're writing a sample script of, of different episodes. But in the TV business, particularly, if you're going to write on a show, you need to show the, the producers that you understand, like, the, the difference between what Kramer sounds like and uh, what Norm from Cheers sounds like. So you write sample scripts of those existing shows. So they go, oh, yeah, this guy gets the voice. So at the time, I think I wrote a Dougie Hauser script. Uh, so you wrote, you wrote
0: scripts of actual uh, sitcoms that were out yeah. there already. Got you? Yeah. That's yeah. That's that's basically what you need to
1: do. At the time, you write scripts of shows that are on the air at the moment. Uh, you know, it's funny because I said, "God, I would love to write a honeymooner script." And they were, like, "Ah, you know that they don't do that anymore." All right. Well, it. I I, I would love to have done that. But anyway, I wrote a Doogie Howser. I wrote a Cheers, a Seinfeld, Mad About You. Uh, Frazier. I mean, you name it. I just wow. you're cranking them out.
0: So what so happened like my... that? Go ahead. Next. What happens?
1: So I, I a couple of weeks go by and I get a call from a woman named Winifred Hervey Stallworth, who's the executive producer, of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. And she calls my agent, the, the fake agent, the, the voicemail and says, yeah, hi, I read Terry Winter's scripts. I think they're really good. I'd like to talk to you. So I'm in L.A. It's a Friday afternoon at like 4.30. I called Doug, the agent in New York. He's gone for the weekend. So I said, "Oh shit, I got to wait till Monday now. But then it occurred to me, he doesn't know anything about being an agent. Why do I have to wait for him? I'll just call and say I'm him. And so ch- I called him change back. Your and I voice. Said, Yeah.
0: So?
1: <laughs> yeah. And I said, hi, right, uh, Doug. Uh, Terry's agent. Yeah, yeah, hey, you know, he's uh, really talented. And uh, she said, yeah, you know, Fresh Prince is kind of like a teenage-oriented show. Does he have one more script we could read uh, that's kind of like geared toward teenagers? I said, oh, you're not going to believe this. He just wrote a great episode of The Wonder <laughs> Years, which his show was on, uh, which was total bullshit. She had everything I had written at that point. I said, but Terry's away this weekend at his, at his beach house. Uh, <laughs> and meanwhile, I'm living in his hovel at the time. I said, can I get it to you on uh, Tuesday? She goes, yeah, yeah, Tuesday's fine. So I hung up, and so for, this is where the hard work comes in again. So from Friday night until Tuesday, I wrote a Wonder Years episode. I didn't get out of my de- out of my chair. Wow. I cranked out a, an episode, and I went in Tuesday afternoon, and I said, this is my shot. And I handed it in, and they called me in, and they had me in a, a week later to pitch ideas, and I ended up selling them on an idea uh, that they ultimately couldn't use, but it ended up being like kind of my first foot in the door. And uh, shortly after that, I got into a program, Warner Brothers Runs, uh, called the Warner Brothers Sitcom Writers Workshop. They take like 15 people out of a pool of about 800 from around the country, and they take these 15 people and put you through a 10-week program. And the idea is that at the end of it, they try to put you on one of their shows. So I went through the program, and they called me in at the end, and they said, we have a situation we think you'd be great for. I said, what is it? They said, well, it's not a sitcom, and that's no reflection on your comedy writing. I said, well, what is it? They said, well, it's a one-hour show that has some comedy. It's about a blue-collar guy who's a lawyer for a really stuffy law firm. Do you think you could write that? <laughs> and I said, if I don't get this job, I'm jumping out the window. I said, this is my life story. I said, yeah, I could, get, I could write that, of course. So the show Fox did in did 1994. You open up? Did
0: you open up that you were an attorney?
1: Yeah, yeah. That's why I said, yeah. I said, this is exactly who I am a bl- okay. blue collar guy who ended up going to be a lawyer and working for a big law firm. I mean, that's my exactly who I am. So, what was so, the show? Uh, the show was called The Great Defender. It starred Michael Raspoli uh, and Peter Krause. It ran, it we only, unfortunately, uh, only did like 10 episodes and it was canceled. Fox. Blew it. I mean, the show was actually really good. It was created by George Skank and Frank Cardia, who run NCIS, the biggest show on TV, and uh, and Frank Rizzoli, who was one of the original writers from The Sopranos. So that's how I met him. And then years later, eight years later, we uh, we wrote on The Sopranos together.
0: Wow. And then uh, Rizzoli, uh, uh, Michael. He. I, I think I casted him in my. Uh, I, I did. I casted him in the one tough cop, I believe, uh, Michael. Yeah, uh, yeah, Bat- yeah, yeah. Marty, yeah, Marty yeah, Bregman. Yeah. yeah. He's re- great actor. Great, great actor. actor.
1: Great actor. Great guy.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And then that was when I when I was partners there with uh, Ma- Marty Bregman, who's since passed. So now you get involved in the Sopranos, of course, this guy, he brings you over there to the Soprano writing uh, crew over there. Yeah,
1: I yeah the show uh, Great Defender only went on for a little while, and from there I just I took every job that anybody offered me. You know, my standard for taking a job at the time was very high. You had to ask me, do you want this job? And I'd say yes. <laughs> I didn't care what it was. I yeah. I couldn't believe people were paying me to write. I I wrote on the New Adventures of Flipper, Xena Warrior Princess, the Cosby <laughs> Mysteries. I mean, literally, I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was right, let's, so lucky. Let's stop
0: talking about game. let's stop talking about the losers. <laughs> let's go right to the winners because the winners. So every, every Sunday yes. night, I was glued to the TV at nine o'clock on HBO. My one, I, you say my favorite series, had to be The Sopranos, and and I yes. know. You were involved in a couple of the episodes that I love personally. I think the Pine Barrens thing with Paulie and Christopher yeah. when they were lost is one of the great ones. And you had, which ones did you were you involved with?
1: Well, I wrote, a, I think I wrote about 26 or 27 of them all wow. together. I mean, some, some of the big ones, uh, you know, Pine Barrens, I wrote the episode uh, Long Term Parking where uh, Adriana gets killed uh i wrote an episode called the second coming uh where aj tries to commit suicide um you know i I wrote the episode where christopher goes to you know they have an intervention with christopher Mm -hmm. i mean just so many uh you know i mean it just goes on and on i think i wrote i wrote more episodes than anybody except david chase
0: you know Uh, um, ultimately you know uh with the one you did the uh with uncle junior shooting tony right
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's another one
0: I did. You know, it's just funny. We did a series for CBS uh, 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 with Marty Bregman, again, called The Gray Area, and... Dominic Janisse, I casted uh, Vinny Pastore, I casted, I casted a whole bunch of people in that. And but the only problem was, (laughs) they casted the lead to play Bo Deedle, Michael Rooker, who's a dear friend of mine. But Michael Rooker's from the South; he's about as much New York as nothing, you know. (laughs) And uh, and that was that was the problem. And we had uh, what was the string? Howard Stringer was the head of CBS at that time. And I and then they said, well, I said this guy can't be a New York City retired detective. He's got that yeep in his voice. They yeah. told me uh, Conrad. And they go, I met with Conrad. I said, this guy's got a California yeep. I said, you know, if you want to be yeah. in New York, you can't talk like a yeep. And uh, I, <laughs> ran in, I ran into Conrad up at the Columbus Cafe. We almost had a fist fight. And I said, listen to me, this ain't one of these commercials where you got batteries on your shoulders. I'll knock you right on your ass. And who was sitting next to him <laughs> was the guy who plays in Blue Bloods, the tall guy. Uh, uh, what the hell is his name, the, the lead actor Tom Google. Selleck? Yeah, Tom oh, Selleck, Selleck was there I said, I'll knock you on your ass and your friend too and and, and all of a sudden they had to pull me away and uh, Mikey uh, Mike Tyson was there with me, but I I, I tell you uh, the truth, you know, some of these guys that all of a sudden became in The Sopranos, some of these great actors were, uh, were I've, I had the fortune of meeting them prior and uh, like I yeah. said, there was no Sunday night that I wouldn't miss The Sopranos, probably probably the greatest series of all times and I I don't say that lightly wow. because that's how much I enjoyed it on on, on 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 Sunday night you know it was just great. Well thank
1: so, you. Well I, I can I can say that too because I didn't come on to the show till the beginning of the second season. So the whole first season I was right where you were. I was a fan. I thought this was the greatest thing I would ever seen. I um, when it, I was on a show called The PJs which was a sitcom a a, a Eddie Murphy. claymation series with Eddie Murphy and at the time when I was doing that, my agent calls me up and he goes, I'm going to send you a videotape. This is, I'm dating myself. This is like 1998. I'm sending you a videotape of a pilot that HBO is doing. It's called The Sopranos. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about opera, right? He goes, just watch it and call me. So I pop it in and about 30 minutes into this thing, I swear to God, I was trembling. I said, this is the greatest fucking thing I've ever seen. It's <laughs> unbelievable. I I know these people. I knew that world. I but I don't know if you know, when I was a kid, I worked one of my jobs when I was a teenager. I was a delivery boy for a butcher shop that was owned by Paul Castellano. Uh, he owned all he the beef
0: change. joints, all the beef joints. Exactly.
1: So, you know, I, you know, by osmosis, you know, you sort of grow up in this world. I also worked in an illegal casino that was run by Roy DeMayo. Oh, uh, in, well, we know about in, uh, Roy DeMayo. Yeah. Yeah, you sure do. And uh, so I, you know, I, so when I saw The Sopranos, you can imagine, I was like, oh, my God, I, I completely understand this world. I know these guys. I know how they think. I know how they talk, etc. So I called my agent. I go, you've got to get me in there to meet this guy, David Chase. My second call was to Frank Ranzulli, who was the guy who hired me on the first show. I said, have you seen this thing, The Sopranos? And he said, yeah, I'm, I'm meeting David Chase on Friday. I said, you've got to get me in there with you. All right, great. I'll see what I can do. Anyway, as it turns out, David had already hired everybody for the first year. Frank was the last guy he hired, and then the door closed. So I sat out the whole first season as a fan, looking at the show, watching it, being jealous. Oh my God, I can't! I got to get on this. I got to So finally, when season two came around, David ended up firing a lot of the original writers, and he said, "All right, who's this guy, Terry Winter?" Frank introduced me to David, and then that was it. My life changed at that point. You know, be, went on. You know, and then I was be- there
0: for. And that became probably, like I just said, the greatest series on television all the time. The the, the melancholy thing, when I think about it, was... Uh, leading up to my friend going to Italy there uh Mr. Tony Soprano there I had met with him and there was a lot of talk about uh, him getting involved playing me as the private investigator thing and never to uh, happen never to happen because yeah. because of uh the him, his untimely death which was a real loss to uh to everybody uh, I mean he was one of the well, great so guys this, in the world this,
1: Oh he, he really was I mean you know it's funny I think people People throw that around like, oh, he was such a great guy. He was a great- He was incredibly generous in every possible way. Such a gentleman. So he was absolutely the guy that you wanted to be number one on the call sheet. At, you know, in your show. You know, he he set a tone for everybody else on that show of, of how to conduct yourself. He's such a such a good guy. So I heard. I heard, so I heard Terry.
0: I heard he actually held out with his contract for the other yeah. actors at some point. Yeah. Absolutely, where, where he wanted to make true. sure that they got the significant raises. This is the character of guy he was.
1: Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah, he was he was he was great. And uh I saw him, you know, sadly the last time I saw him was was a few months before he passed. And it's funny, I was working on a script. Uh it was a Sunday afternoon, it was Easter Sunday. I was in New York, I was working on a script, and he emailed me, he said, I'm I'm having an open house, I'm in New York. Why don't you come by, just inviting a bunch of people over, just stop by for a drink or whatever. And originally, I was, ah, I'm busy. And something told me, you know what, just take an hour and jump in a cab and go see. And I did, and I thank God I did, because that was the last time I saw him. And he was, uh, he just had the new baby, and he was so happy. And the two of us, you know, got to chat for about 15 or 20 minutes, and it, it was great. And then it was such a shock.
0: Uh, a true, a true, I mean, a true loss cool. to everyone. And then let's yeah. let's fast forward because you had one of the shows there. All of a sudden you became the showrunner and creator. I was very fortunate to play a, uh, 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 I think, a uh, Chicago cop in it. Chicago I played, cop, yeah. There was one little episode there that was uh, great, and we were in the uh, warehouse. Uh, and right. I was there with, uh, with uh, uh, well, there wasn't Capone, I forget, but I anyway any case, I was in one, one series. I never was able to go into The Sopranos. Uh, David had a part for me, and something came up where I couldn't do it, and I, I kicked oh, myself no. in the butt because it was my favorite series of all time. That would have been the one I wanted to do. So now you do Boardwalk Empire, right. which, again— Boardwalk Empire, again, was one of the most fabulous series of all times, where we took history, and uh, you bent it a little bit, but it was so fabulous, and you then headed that up, right, Terry? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was uh, my show. I, I finished up on The Sopranos. I was still working for HBO. And no, they, hold they, on, they, you, you know, met this—you
0: met this guy that wanted to be a director too. Uh, this this halfway director named uh, Martin Scorsese right?
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I heard of that guy. <laughs> well, it's so funny. I—I I, this is the God's honest truth. You know, when people say this stuff, like, "Oh, he inspired me," the—the the thing that made me get interested in movies and te- movies was Taxi Driver. In, ah. in 1976, when that came out, or 77, I, I'm not sure, I forget which one. I was a teenager. And I saw that movie. The summer it came out, I probably saw that movie 15 times. It was the first movie I ever saw that made me think about movies in, in more than just, a, of like, oh, it's something to do on a Friday night. I walked out of that said, like, wow. What? Why is that so different? And it, you know, the whole tone of it, and the way it was edited, and the acting, and the story, and everything. And I just, it really got me interested in who's this guy Martin Scorsese and who wrote it, and what other movies that he's directed. And that was the thing that set me on the path toward wanting to do this for a living. So when you cut to the end of The Sopranos, I, I finish up there. I go into HBO, and they say, all right, what are we going to do next? Let's let's come up with a show. So they said, "Well, we have this book, Boardwalk Empire. It's the history of Atlantic City." And my initial reaction was like, "Oh, gee, the, the, how, really? The history of Atlantic City?" And They said, "Why don't you just read it and see if you think there's a series in there somewhere?" And I said, "Oh, by the way, Martin Scorsese is attached to that." <laughs> that's all they had and to say. I stopped in my, I stopped in my tracks. I turned around. I said, "If that's the truth, then yes, there is a series in here, and I'm going <laughs> to find it." I went home. And I said to my wife, Rachel, I said, HBO just gave me a TV series. She said, what do you mean? I said, if, if Martin Scorsese is actually attached to this thing and I figure it out, they're going to do it. They're not going to not do it. They, if he wants to do it, I, I, just have, I just have to figure it out. She goes, well, go figure it out. <laughs> so I went and I read the book, and there was a chapter on this guy, Nucky, who ran Atlantic City during the 1920s. And I said, this is the guy. It's prohibition. It's, this is a guy who is a corrupt city uh, work, city um, controller who ran a city on the eastern seaboard during a time when alcohol was illegal. Where did all the alcohol come in? From the ocean. So overnight, every gangster in America wanted to be friends with this guy. He's mm-hmm. a city county tre- treasurer who was corrupt as the days long. He never made more than $1,500 in a year on the book, but his residence was the entire sixth floor of the Ritz-Carlton Hotel. So <laughs> that's that's all you need to know about this guy. All and I think like, that's the show.
0: And all I know is you brought all the characters you touched upon. Al Capone with that great actor yeah. that you casted. Graham yeah, is Yeah, Stephen name? Graham. Yeah, he, yep, Stephen he, Graham. Uh, he uh, is one of the great actors there, Stephen Graham. There's, yep. a little, there's a little talk. Netflix is talking to me about him being Bo Deedle. And I says, well, that, you like him. Great I, idea. Like, I like him, too. Uh, so now let's just stay focused on this because that becomes yeah. one of the great series. Then all of a sudden, you know, our, our past has touched quite quite a lot. Yeah. Then all of a sudden, yeah. you get involved with Marty again with this thing called vinyl, which to me, yep. if that guy, the number two guy, the Italian guy there in HBO, if he didn't run it against Walking Dead, we that thing would still <laughs> be going on. And Lombardo, I think it was Lombardi or Lombardo. Yeah. Yeah, and I yeah. Little, little Birdie yeah. told me when he ran it against they 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 premiered it against Walking Dead, which has 15 million psychopaths that watch it every Sunday. You don't <laughs> you don't do something like that if you want to get off. I think he was fired right after that. He should have been fired. He took vinyl, which was. A very great series, and he didn't he didn't categorize it right. When you bring something out like this, you have to have a big audience that's going to get into it yeah. right away. And uh, it was about the 1970s, Carlo. It was uh, very interesting. Yeah. I love that show. I and uh, again, Mr. The music, Scorsese, the gangsters, everything involved. With Scorsese, yeah, I mean, I in the record business. there were some
1: big, big mistakes made in launching that show. You know, and it, it's interesting. The Irishman is a great example. You know, the the pilot of vinyl was essentially a movie. It was a two-hour pilot. So rather than if if I were running the network, I would advertise it as saying it's a two-hour Martin Scorsese movie event. So make a virtue of the fact that you've got a Martin Scorsese movie as your pilot and put it on, they should have put it on after the – finale of Game of Thrones, Absolutely. when you had every eye, every every eyeball in the world is on it. And let say, now here's a Martin Scorsese movie, Ugh. and then you know premiere it like that. So instead, they put it on Valentine's Day at 9 o'clock against the biggest show on TV without telling people that it's a two-hour pilot. So assuming you're watching it, which chances are you weren't because you were watching The Walking Dead. You sit down at 9 o'clock on a Sunday night, also assuming you're not out with your girlfriend or your wife because it's Valentine's Day, and it's an hour long, and it's 10 o'clock now, and it's not over, and then it's 10.15, and it's not over, and then it's 10.30, and it's not over, and you go, I want to go to fucking bed. What's happening? (laughs) And it it was a complete disaster of a launch of this show that, you know, I have to remind people the reviews were really good. We actually got a and 77 or so on Rotten
0: Tomatoes. That's a, hit show. That's you a had, hit show. And you you brought out one of my favorite actors again Mr. Bobby Carnival, who I think is one of the yeah. top actors in Hollywood right now. And it was great. And I was very fortunate until you shot me in back in my friggin' head. And do you remember <laughs> when we were re- we were reading a script, Carlo? And we're doing a script uh, reading. And uh, Terry's down the end. we around a table. And now I'm reading the script. And all of a sudden I read. I go, no Effin way are you gonna <laughs> shoot me back in my head? I I called Scorsese up. I said, Marty, how do I get whacked like this? I said, bullshit. So then I calmed down, and then I heard about that we were being considered for a second season. Yeah, uh, and Terry. So next thing is, I call Marty, and I go, Marty. I'll lose 20 pounds. I'll shave the friggin' beard off. I'll put a long wig on. I want to be the brother of the Lord. I waxed this son of a bitch that killed me. And we know, hey, Terry, we could have wrote that in. Come on, Terry. No, absolutely. <laughs> well, here's
1: the, here's the thing. You know, and it's funny. David Chase told me this because we did that with Dan Grimaldi uh, on the Sopranos who played Patsy Parisi. Don, uh, uh, De- uh, rather, David... Loved uh, Dan Grimaldi's performance so much. In in an earlier episode, he he played a character named Philly Parisi, who was killed. And David said, God, I shouldn't have killed that guy. He was so good. And David said to me something, I never forgot. He goes, you can do this once per... TV series. Bring the guy back. has a twin yeah. brother. A twin brother. That was so funny. <laughs> And I'm bringing him back. He's got a twin brother. And that's what I wanted to do with you. And then you and know, know bring... who I wanted to bring back to
0: You know who I wanted to bring back to? I told Marty. as you got to bring You got to bring the nut back. I mean, oh, I Dice? Think, Yeah, Andrew was fabulous. Fabulous. You it,
1: the three of you guys together in that scene was maybe one of the fav- my favorite things that I ever wrote. Oh, the three you, Bobby and Dice together in that scene where you guys kill him is is the dark comedy at its finest. And, I, you know, I'm obviously very self-serving. I'm getting chills in my hair. To life.
0: I'm getting chills in my hair because I remember, and I'll never forget, Carlo, they had these these uh, these heads of uh, of Andrew Dice Clay. They made they were prosthetics. And they had four of them. They were like 10 grand each. They put separate hairs in them. That's when I had to bash his head open, right? And, uh, yeah. uh, I mean, I just was, it was so great to be there. The only thing I did feel bad when you whacked me, and I did it I did tell you I thought I was very hurt. I was very hurt. Now let's jump to one of my favorites again. Well, I
1: just I just wanted to jump I just wanna jump in and say because somebody asked me like what's the hardest part of your job? And I've said it and it's the God's honest truth, it's telling an actor his character's gonna die. That sucks. That's the worst thing. I felt
0: like you were no, really whacking well, me. I felt like you were really killing
1: it, Terry. It's so hard to get – it's so hard to work in this business and especially then to get a job that you really love and working with people you really like to work with and then to find out you're you're, you're getting fired basically because you're, you're getting killed. It's the worst thing I have to do is call somebody. I know how hard it is and I know how – how hard people work and how, how yeah, right. much they so love you, their so you whack
0: So you whacked me. And then I was able to, to be in one of the great movies. Uh, you wrote it. You were uh, nominated for the Oscar for the screenplay. And uh, yeah. The Wolf of Wall Street, another one of these movies. Yeah. And then when all of a sudden you guys were casting for it, and they said, well, you know, Marty calls me up, he goes, there's a guy in this book that's over and over in this book, and his name's Bo Dietl. Who are we going to get to cast on that for Bo Dietl? I said, <laughs> Marty, that's my freaking part, and you're not taking it away. And I was very fortunate <laughs> to be part of that. And, uh, oh, you know, great. we're go- we got we- we're, we're going to run down soon, but listen to this. Right now, what are you working on right now?
1: Uh, I am juggling a bunch of different projects. I just wrote a pilot for FX, actually a cop show uh, that I'm really excited about. Uh, did you see that uh, actor?
0: Did you see that actor in The Irishman? That actor that uh, controls I, De Niro, the Chicago guy, the guy uh, Glimp Co or something that controls did, De Niro yeah, Glimco, Pacino. Yeah. I know he's available well, you know for what? your I, new series. I
1: like the uh, the, uh, the 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 training of being a Chicago cop in Boardwalk Empire probably helped you play that. Uh, of that course, record, and, so. then they,
0: and then and then I love rum and I love watermelon and. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so you you're developing that now. What happened? What happened to your movie? there?
1: Which one? The I one got so about the Mayo. Things, Mayo, yeah, that's uh, Film Nation is the company that's doing that. We have a great director named Greg Matola uh, who's doing that where we're trying to cast the movie literally as we speak.
0: So I know another very guy right? I know that. another guy a guy from Brooklyn that's very available for that one too. I went, went, <laughs> hint, hint, hint. But All uh, right, good
1: to know. You know we're uh,
0: you know we're uh, we're on the footstep of with the series thing on that based on that. Oh, that's that. great. Yeah, and uh, I think I think Netflix is very very interesting. Here's the here's the bottom line also. I haven't talked to you, Bring you up to date. I got a contact by two head guys at Netflix when we were at one of the uh, premiere parties for for uh, the Irishman, and they mentioned yeah. about this guy Graham, and then they mentioned about doing a trilogy. You know, I grew up with Gotti and Scopo and all that, and then it would be. Sure kid growing up, and then he becomes the famous cop, detective, crap, and then the private investigator, it'd be like a trilogy, and then all of a sudden, the guys from Netflix is, and you know who we want to play, the private investigator, I said, who? You. So, I mean, we we're in the midst of that a little bit, so I'll, I'll keep great. in touch with you and let you know there's some great stories, you know, nothing better than real True stories. I just talked to Anthony yeah. Pelicano yesterday. You know Anthony. He's out of yeah, jail. Sure. And, I mean, yeah. he is just loaded with some of the greatest stories of all times. Oh, I can't, and, imagine. An- can't Anthony's imagine. A- and Anthony's a good friend of mine. And, uh, matter of fact, we were together in L.A. during the world premiere of The Irishman. But what I want to do is i got to keep my avenues o- open with you, Terry, because I love you. I think you're one of the most talented people I've ever met. I just Right, got- right
1: back at you
0: and i got back i just got the phone with our favorite guy too nick poleggi who i'm going to have dinner ah. with monday night another fabulous guy but i just i just wanted to 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 tell you i thank you so much for coming on the show when you make your way to new york let's grab dinner together let's keep the avenues open and i'd love to do another project with you again and i just want the people we got a pretty good listening audience how do people get in touch with you terry
1: uh CAA is the agency I work uh I work with. They're, they're my agents. Uh so just call over to Creative Artists Agency and that's where you can get me.
0: Are you on social media at all? Anyone can get no. scoop on your project? Okay. I have no
1: social media. I'm I totally under the radar.
0: Well, Carlo is my social media. If he doesn't look at the Instagrams and Twitters, twatters, uh, guys tell me, oh, you know, I'm, I'm your friend. I'm your friend. I say, oh, good, you're my friend. I don't know what the hell they're talking about. Carlo man's that shit. I tell Carlo, I don't want to know any old girlfriends. I don't want to know anything <laughs> but, but business. If it's business-related, Carlo, let me know. And if you like one of the chicks that are calling me up, there, she still looks good, you could date her. I don't, I'm not interested. <laughs> but, Terry, I want to thank you so much. Are you going to make it to, to New York before Christmas? No, no.
1: We're going to stay out in L.A. We're going to go skiing uh, uh, in uh, uh for Christmas time, and then uh, stay in L.A.
0: for the new year. I want to wish you very happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Happy holidays. Same, uh, happy New Year. I love you. Please keep me in mind on anything you're doing. I'm very available. One Tough Cop is waiting for you, brother.
1: <laughs> All right, pal. Thank you maybe, so much for me on. Great great hearing your voice.
0: Maybe I'll get Netflix to say I know a showrunner for One Tough Cop trilogy, <laughs> and his name's Terry Winter. I'd love to do even something even with you again, mind. Terry. All right, brother. Love you. Thank you, Terry.
1: Thank you, Terry. Thanks,
0: Carlo. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. Terry Winter, one of the greatest uh, TV people that's ever been around, some great TV projects. And you heard it right from him, hard work equals success. You can follow us on social media, One Tough Podcast on Twitter. Bo is at Bo on Twitter. Email us all, questions, comments, concerns, One Podcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next week. Thank you.